Tandem Nomads, episode 66. That there are people who need to hear this, and there are people who are battling with their own losses, whether it be a death of a beloved or any number of other losses, and they are aching to know how one survives it. How do you go on, and how do you eventually become a woman who can do an interview and laugh and dance and go running with your dog through the forest? How does that ever happen? Welcome to Tandem Nomads, the podcast show for expat partners. Every new episode is launched twice a month on Tuesdays. You will find here great inspiration and tips to build your portable career and thrive with your family in your global nomadic life. Hello, Nomad Nation. This is Emel Deregi. Today's episode is a little bit special for many reasons. The first reason is that it's the second part of the previous episode. So we started last week uh, talking with Melissa Dalton Bradford, who is a global entrepreneur and a global mom. And in that episode, uh, number 65, she shares with us her journey, how she managed to build an incredible portable career in over 20 moves around the world. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure to check it out. Melissa is a singer. She's an actress, but she's also an author. She has published a book called uh, Global Mom, a memoir, and also the book called On Loss and Living Onward. She spends, on top of that, a major amount of her time supporting refugees in Germany, uh, providing German courses, but she also uh, supports many other projects who are designed to help the refugee crisis in the world. So today's episode is going to be a lot about uh, what she shares in this book, which is the tragedy of the loss of her son. Um, so I wanted to bring to you this episode to because I know that a lot of us might have experienced the loss of somebody we loved and it's not always easy to manage it in normal life, but it's even more complicated when living in global lifestyle. I want you to bear with me a little bit today because this episode is probably the longest episode I've ever, ever uh, recorded. And it's also an episode that I decided to not edit because there were so many valuable and cherishable things that Melissa shares with us here that I really didn't want to cut off anything. But let me just tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk here so that you can know a bit more about it. So this episode is going to be for an hour. It's a bit like a documentary uh, where Melissa shares in true um, honesty and in true vulnerability how she has been dealing with her fam family uh, with the loss of Parker. And she did this with such humility. Honestly, I don't think there's anything worse that can happen for anyone than the loss of a child. So I really cherish what Melissa has been sharing with us. Uh, but she also gives us a lot of tips on how to help those who, who lost somebody. So we're going to have four parts in this episode. The first one is how she managed to deal with the loss of her son and how did her family deal with it. This is something very personal, so it's very hard to give advice on how to deal with because we're all different. But I think it it helps to hear uh, somebody else's perspective. And we're very lucky to have Melissa here to share with us so openly her experience with us. And I'm pretty sure that just relating with that feeling can help a lot. So the first part is about 
you know, how she dealt with it and maybe something can help you or help any of your friends with that. The second part is how to actually help somebody who goes through grief because it's not that easy to know what to do. So I thought a bit of guidance from somebody who has experienced that loss uh, might be helpful. And the third part is about actually if we did lose somebody, how to help our people around us um, do the right things for us. And it's not always easy to know what we need, but I thought it would be interesting and important to share, to help those who are experiencing loss, to be able to express it with those who are around them, because there's so many miscommunications that can happen in this very, very difficult time. And finally, we'll also talk about the international aspect of um, losing somebody we love when living far from home and arriving in a country where we don't know anybody. How do we do that when we're broken, when we're hurt? And how do we share this with our new community when we just arrived somewhere? So really, really deep topic, a deep episode. Um, I've never had to record such a sensitive and um, important episode. So please bear with me. I hope you will be able to go through the whole episode or at least come back to it and listen to it in different pieces. As I believe that it can be really, really valuable to each of us on this earth because we all have to deal at some point with this terrible feeling of loss. So um, I hope this will be helpful to you and to anybody around you. And please make sure to share with anybody who might, you know, um, who this might help. So let's start now. We've been talking a lot about, you know, um, spirituality and also having our life out there. And one of the major events of your life that you've been sharing with us is the loss of your son. Yeah. So would it be possible to take us through it? Um, and because there's not much ways to start this conversation that can be very sensitive so um, you've been sharing a lot of your journey and um, I don't know what would you like now to share to start with well first I want to thank you for the tone in your voice it's very sweet and tender I can tell that your your whole body language if if I could say so has has changed as you walk onto what I consider sacred ground And, and that is a beautiful thing that, that speaks of your depth. So thank you for that. I'm, I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to talk about this thing, which I believe is the most defining event or defining reality of our family's life. And for me as a mother, um, uh, a number of years ago in the middle of a major international move, um, And when we had sent our eldest child, his name is Parker, off to university in the States, um, we were, our family was in four different geographic locations. My husband was still in, in Munich, having um, overseen the legal details of the move for many years in Paris. And I had just arrived in the States um, to be there with our children who were entering summer camps like so many of us do, who are tandem nomads. And then our oldest was going into college, and the first week of his university experience, he was involved in a tragic water accident where he was pulled into uh, an invisible but lethal vortex, a whirlpool, 
uh, he and another student, and then he was able to get out. Our son, who was a star athlete, was strong, and he was able to get out, and he went back twice to save or to try to save the life of this other student. The other student survived, but our son did not. And right now, I'm looking out my window, and I'm saying to myself, you can keep it together, Melissa. You can keep it together as you talk about this. And and so I always, just to let you know about the internal dialogue, I have to sort of hold myself together when I talk about this, because it is very tender. And uh, But I want to share the story, because I'm, I'm convinced now, after years of sharing the story in written form and um, in, in public settings, that there are people who need to hear this. And there are people who are battling with their own losses, whether it be a death of a beloved or any number of other losses. And they are aching to know how one survives it. How do you go on? And how do you eventually become a woman who can do an interview and laugh and dance and go running with your dog through the forest? How does that ever happen? So... What it's very complex, but to simplify it, after we turned off Parker's life support, um, I felt us catapulted to a new planet, not even just a new country, but a new planet. We felt alien on the earth. I felt like we couldn't even connect with anyone around us. Um, My identity as a woman, this woman who had poured herself from the first day into the raising of her children. Um, and this was my firstborn, so I had sort of, I had learned mothering with him. Mm-hmm. And this child who had also become my right-hand assistant when my husband was traveling so much, this was my sort of big boy that would carry the furniture up and down the stairs and who would help his brother and brothers and sister across town on the metro in in Paris to suddenly have this child this adult child gone was an utter implosion of my life and it it really um, it destroyed my identity I wondered to who I was and if I would ever go back to that woman who had been talking and writing and speaking and singing and hosting and managing international moves, I thought she was gone forever. Mm-hmm. I thought she was gone forever. I just couldn't imagine getting the energy back. So here we were, newly catapulted to this planet of grief and barely making it through our days. And you know what I did, Emel? I sort of applied the same skills to navigating that planet of grief as I had used to navigate every new country that we'd ever lived in. Mm. <laughs> I, went to, I went to the natives, right? I went right to the natives. So I hunted out people who had lost. I was constantly on the lookout, on the prowl, for people who looked devastated and, and people who I knew had lost. I hunted out parents who had lost young adult males to tragic accidents. Just like when I had shown up in Paris, I hunted out people who spoke fluent French, people who were native to that culture. And so I hunted out the natives of 
the planet of grief. And I talked with them and I tried to find out from them. It's very much like when you move to a new country. You move to a new country and you feel like, am I the only absolutely idiotic, incompetent, uh, crazy person here? I can't get anything done. And you talk with others and they say, no, you're not the only incompetent, idiotic, crazy person. We all felt that way. And when I talked with bereaved parents, they were saying, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We also lost 15 kilos in a month. And we also couldn't talk. And we also wept until the capillaries in our eyes burst. And we also um, lost friends. Friends disappeared from off the face of the planet. And we never saw them again. And, And they were able to give me a sense of reassurance that what we were going through was, in fact, normal for someone who is who has moved to the planet of grief and then I started learning the language of grief people who have experienced cataclysmic loss kind of get together and they speak a shorthand with one another and you can compare that to people like us who are tandem nomads or global nomads and you can say ah That first year, it's a tough one, right? Remember that first year when you're in a new country? Or, oh, registering in a new country. Or, oh, learning the cultural cues. Oh, oh, and you had to do it in a new language. Or, oh, your children hated the school. You can get together with people who have a similar life experience, and they reassure you that it's what they've gone through also, and then it's you speak a sort of shorthand. And we experienced the same thing when we connected then with other people who knew about deep loss. I love the fact that you've been doing this so well, you know, trying to take us right away from the tragedy that you've lived with your family to giving us right away some insights, you know, on how you dealt with it. So thank you Mm -hmm. for that. And you mentioned a lot the importance of reaching out to people who have been through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what has, what are the, the things that helps you most from what people have shared with you to not mm. only deal with it as a mother, but you mm. also had other kids to take care of that I'm sure mm-hmm. went through the same grief too. And also a husband who must have been as, as devastated with this yes. tragedy. So, yes. so how do no. you do that? Well, oh, excellent question. How many hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make you laugh here. It, Remember earlier in in the first part of the interview that we talked about the factors that helped with all of the moves, and I said there are three things. They are my family, my 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 particularly my relationship with my husband. That's very grounding, a community, and then my spirituality. Well, mm-hmm. it was those three things also <laughs> mm-hmm. that have been the decisive factors in our experience of, I will not say getting over because you don't get over this sort of thing, Um, or moving through is maybe closer to the reality, but I'll call it absorbing and adapting to. Absorbing this blow and adapting to a life where loss is omnipresent. Our community was utterly, utterly uh, saving for us. Your community and, and, and you'll find this in all of the literature about bereavement and adapting to a life with loss, is that the community is necessary. And why would that be? 
Community is necessary because the community is the framework in which you write the story of your life. And they know the past, they know the present, they're helping write your life into the future. You create your identity, again, that magic word Mm -hmm. that you like to talk about and so do I. You create your identity in a a matrix of relationships, uh, which is why, to go back to our first part of this interview that I liked so much, that's why identity is such a, a troublesome issue when you're moving perpetually because your identity is interrupted, 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 and you have to create your identity over and over again everywhere you move. Well, with, with grief, the identity of, of the survivor is also challenged, but you have to remember it's the identity of the one who's lost. The reality of that life this son of mine, who was this huge personality at his school in Paris, who was a big deal in our local community, he belonged to them, too. They helped write his story. And he was a player in their lives, and they were players in his life. And so for them to continue to narrate the story of this boy was absolutely necessary. And it's why a community can do so much to help um, in the survival and adaptation uh, process of the, the family. Mm-hmm. So they memorialize and they continue to talk about him and they ask questions and they listen and they show up and they help and they mourn with you, which is so obvious you'd think, but sometimes in our communities we're afraid to enter into these tender very delicate, painful areas for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. For a number of reasons. There are long lists of reasons why we don't, but we hold ourselves back. And in that holding back, we send the tacit message to the survivor, the bereaved, that their loss doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to us. That's Even though that's not what we feel, that's the message that we receive. Or if you show up in a room and you know that everybody in that room knew your beloved that's now gone, but they won't address it, right? We do that, don't we? We dance all around that very delicate, the flame of loss. We dance all around it and we'll talk about, we'll talk about the weather, we'll talk about politics, we'll talk about um, the latest thing in social media, we'll talk about steel-belted radial tires, we'll talk about mm. Snooky's lip gloss, but we won't talk about the thing that everyone is is sad about, and that also sends the message to the one who is gasping for breath that, you know what, we're already done with being sad. We want to move on to trivia. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very hard for the survivors. So I've mentioned that, number one, it was my relationship with my husband and with my family that helped us. We helped one another shoulder through this and bear it. Number two, it's this community. And then, again, it's this spirituality. I dove headlong into a monastery, MO. I kind of went into this retreat and sought spiritual guidance because I thought, this is too big for any mortal to handle. There's got to be a bigger world that can help me through this. And it's very much my spiritual self that... that gave me, that discovered strength and answers and guidance. And in the middle of the most, now I'm going to get emotional, but in the middle of the most impenetrable darkness where I felt like I had 
an avalanche of weight on my chest so that I could hardly breathe and where everything spoke death and decay, I saw glimmers and shards of light. And they were enough to keep me going. And, and that grabbing onto that light and following it and seeing hope and finding love and finding enough of it to just inch back out into re-engagement in the world and with others, that, that was saving that was saving. That was saving for the family. Mm. So that's a long, long answer. And of course, we could talk for oh, a yeah. long time. There is so many. Thank you so much, Melissa. Before we go forward, I just want to yeah. thank you for sharing in such a sensitive way um, your pain and, and what has helped you to deal with it. And as you said, it never goes. And, and, and maybe no. it's not so bad that it never goes because how can it go if you loved somebody uh, right. so much? But it's dealing with it and continuing. Life has to go on, but yes. it's not over. The pain cannot right. go over. That's right. Um, you know, there's, there's two important parts for me that you've been talking about is we, we started saying, how can we help those who are grieving? You know, how, mm-hmm. what, what help has helped you and your family go through that grief? And you talked a lot about your relationship with your husbands, with your kids, the community, and the spirituality. And I guess mm-hmm. you have to have some kind of also uh, willingness to fight it, you know, to, to, yes. to put the effort in getting better in dealing yes. with it. And this is what I sense in what you've been doing is putting that effort in getting better by investing in yourself, going to the retreat and, and taking mm-hmm. care of yourself. Yes. So this is important, I think, to, to, mm-hmm. to highlight. Um, yes. The other thing you know, we, we talk a lot about the community, uh, mm-hmm. how important it is. And I think it must be maybe, you know, 50% of, if, if not more of the grieving process is the community. Um, the people around us who help us go through it, but we know that it's not easy for everybody to know what to say and no. what to do uh, when somebody that we love has, loved some, has lost somebody they loved. So, yes. um, and in certain cases, it makes people do certain things that can even be painful. Uh, right. You know, so <laughs> I, I know that you mentioned yeah. we met at the FIGT, uh, Family mm-hmm. Global Transition in Amsterdam. And yeah. um, you mentioned some of the things that some people did when they tried to help you and that actually didn't help you. I would like to go through that and then focus more on the positive on what have people done to help you and what can you tell us of what we should do to help people who go through grief okay good and, and i and i like the way you're going to, i like the way you're structuring that that we go through the negatives first and then let's yeah let's end on the things that are possible yeah. because um uh, we human beings are well-meaning i i'm an idealist and so i just trust that everyone's trying to do the right thing but wow we come up with some doozies. <laughs> we, we do some, some pretty crazy things. And I have to say, I am sure that before grief was my own planet, I did the same stuff. I'm sure. I look back and I just cringe and I think, oh, I did number one, two, four, nine, twelve, and everything else down the list that was not helpful. But they're, they're very key things in all of the literature that I have read. And again, that was part of my ad- adaptation and, and um, 
integration to the land or the planet of grief was that not only did I speak with people, live people that were natives, but I read a library of books about the experience of loss and adaptation. And the same sort of painful, um, painful attempts at helping the bereaved come up over and over and over again. And, and here are just a few of them. We've already talked about remaining silent mm. or, or pulling oneself away. When you see the bereaved in the grocery store and then you dip around into another aisle because you just don't want that painful, awkward, awkward encounter, that's, that's very hurtful for the bereaved when they feel that they're avoided. A friend of mine who lost her beautiful 16-year-old daughter to a tragic ski accident said... I feel that I'm my own leper colony. I, everyone is avoiding me. Either they're avoiding me or, number two on the list, is that they ambush. People come and they storm the bereaved in an attempt to give quick fixes. So um, we can call it the, the bandage attempt or the, the magnet for your kitchen refrigerator with some sort of platitude on it and you want to slap it over this huge pain and then run away so you get ambushed at first and then people disappear and um and very much that ambushing is accompanied by lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of talking and we do that because we're nervous we do that because we believe as human beings if i just keep saying something something's going to help here right mm. and in that attempt then we say we say sometimes very hurtful things. One grief, grief, uh, grief therapist uh, once said to me, quoting someone else, said, really, the best thing you can do is show up and shut up. <laughs> That's <laughs> you, a good one. You, just, just show up. Just your, your physical presence, even if you're standing on the threshold of the door and you are dumbstruck. I had friends that did that and just seeing them standing there and then look dumbstruck and at a loss as awkward and as vulnerable and as stripped down as I felt was strengthening for me because I recognized in their dumbstruckness and in their awkwardness that they were also overwhelmed by this reality. It was too big for words. And sometimes silence is the very best language for huge loss. What words are there really that can get to the edges of a loss that feels bigger than the universe for you? So sometimes just showing up and just doing something. So that's something else I've learned is that you can just show up and do something. Show up and take out the garbage. Take a child on the walk. Take the dog on the walk. Cut the grass. Do the dishes. Clean the windows. Uh, leave a gift. Um, any of those practical things, I believe strongly that everyone, no matter how inept they might feel and overwhelmed in the moment when they hear about someone else's loss, they have a gift that they can give. They can do something. We have a very good friend, I'll just give you an example, who, who, says, he ha who says himself, I've got two social neurons. I mean, that's, he says, I'm just not really good socially. Mm. But he is a brilliant, brilliant, um, not a brain surgeon, but he studies CAT scans. He's a, he's a, and so what did he do for us? 
he wasn't going to come and sit by our side and, and stroke our hand and weep with us because that just wasn't him. But he read the brain CAT scans and he sent us his professional excellent reading of the CAT scans. So someone from that group can do that and somebody else showed up to help us select a gravestone and somebody else helped design the funeral um, programs because this person was gifted with design. So I'm going on and on here just giving a list of the things that one can do. But the best thing is just to show up, shut up, and follow that deep inclination that I believe everyone has a deep spiritual intuition that will say, do this, go now, say this, don't say that, step back, um, give this piece of music, bring these particular flowers. If you, if you tune into that, then you can do a lot. The, the other thing that is always comes up in literature is that, um, and because I'm a, I'm a person of faith, because I'm a person who's engaged in her religion, I can speak with authority about this. Sometimes people want to use religion as some sort of a weapon or as their quick go-to answer to tragedy. They want to talk all about God's will and how God needed that person and how that person's in a better place and how now you've got an angel. And people come with all sorts of platitudes, which I'm sure are well-meaning, but they drive people to rage. <laughs> they drive people to rage. They drive the, the bereaved to, yeah. to great anger and resentment and sometimes drive people out of their faith community completely. Because they feel that they're, that somebody who hasn't wept and mourned with them is going to come and try and patch up this deep gash in their life with, with a scripture or two. And, and again, I have the right to say that because I'm deeply spiritual and religious. <laughs> but those things don't help. They, they might, some of them might be even true. I don't know. But they don't help in the moment. What helps in the moment is showing up weeping, mourning, doing something that you can help. And then here's the fourth thing I want to mention. Mm -hmm. Grief always, always, always outlasts conventional comfort. It always does. We might be thinking as, as onlookers of someone's grief that, hey, it's been a month. It's been two months. It's been six months. You should be back to normal, right? Yeah. Hmm. This is a terrible, terrible fallacy and a terrible thing to even utter. And when we start putting timelines on other people's experience of agony, then we deny them the dignity and we deny them the reverence and we deny them the reality of their love. Because grief is not a sign of weakness and it's not a sign of a lack of faith. It is the flip side of love, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know that you know it's the you grieve because you you don't grieve things that you haven't loved, you grieve things that you love deeply, yeah. and it's not somehow um, pathological to be very sad or even dizzy and disoriented months and months after the fact. In fact, my lowest point in my grief was nineteen months after. We buried our son. It was 19 months. And it had had peaks, and I'd been up, and I'd been able to talk, and I'd regained my laughter, and I had 
smiled at some point, but something hit really hard at 19 months and I went deep down into a dark place. And by then, everybody thinks that you're back to the old person you were, but you know this, don't you, Emil? You're never back to the person that you no. were before. No, <laughs> it's just like, you know, having a, an arm or a leg cut off and that arm will never come back. And it's like pretending that that arm or their hand is back. You're supposed That's to use right. it. <laughs> yes. And building on that wonderful metaphor, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian a theologian and writer, um, has written about this. He says, death is an amputation. And if we build on that, we think, what if somebody then came up to you and said, after you've had your arm hacked off without anesthesia, what if they said, what do you mean you can't play volleyball? Come, you used to play volleyball. Come play, be the old volleyball player we really need you to play and you and you feel wait you, you haven't, even, haven't even been acknowledged that part of me is gone forever i'm now different and i'll have phantom pain in that limb mm -hmm. and i'll never be a person with two two arms again as long as i'm living as long as i breathe and so uh, it doesn't mean that you want people to pity you or to exclude you from life but just to recognize ah That is her broken edge. Mm -hmm. She, she's broken. She's yeah. broken. And um, yeah, that's, yes. that's so many, so many. You're so talented, Melissa, talking of this. I don't know a lot of people who can share in such a way that it really brings, you know, it helps us, you know, to oh. as people who have lost, but also people who want to help. So thank you so much for those words. And I have more questions. So yes. I just, <laughs> I just <laughs> want to... I just want to summarize real briefly what you said now. Yes, the first please. thing is about, you know, let's not avoid the person who lost somebody because we don't know how to talk with this person. Right. right. That's very important. The second one you said, you know, just be there. And and I would say, you know, um, it's not about what we say, but it's a lot also about what we do. And just being mm -hmm. there is also an mm -hmm. action. Just being yes. present and just yes. giving a hug or being just seated next to the person yes. without saying yes. anything yes. is an yes. action. So it's not yes. so much about what we say. If we don't know mm -hmm. what to say, we shut up, like you said. Yep. <laughs> Show up and shut up. Mm -hmm. I love it. Show up and shut up. <laughs> and you've seen so many people around you who have used their talents to show you their compassion instead oh, of words and yes, this amazing. is amazing yes it is so if we want to help somebody let's think of what are our talents that we can put in place to help that person uh you talked about religion how important it is to be spiritual but also mm -hmm. not use that as a weapon to try to comfort somebody because um, right. we can use it but maybe be careful with that because that could yes. actually have the reverse effect because life yes. feels so unfair at that moment well, that's so, right bringing up you know that it was the choice of a superpower god a superpower, or, right, uh, exactly. it's not something i think a person who has lost someone right away is ready to hear no. Um, no. and um you talked also at the end of the time giving time but also accepting that things will never go away so let's not mm -hmm. pretend that our friends who have lost somebody should just go back to who they were because they will mm -hmm. never become go back to where who they were no right and we wouldn't do the opposite when someone has a child do we say you're going to be the same person before you have a child no it's a radical change a radical change again in identity in your place in the universe the where you're going to invest your emotions and And, and, and we wouldn't pretend that the same person then remains after the 
tragic loss of that that child. No, things are changed, and and for me and for my husband at least, we don't want to go back to the people that we were before. We knew something radical had happened in the universe, in our little personal universe, and so we wanted this to affect a change in us. And because any kind of loss, death or not, gives us an opportunity to change. And here we go back to the first half of our interview, moving from country to country, from culture to culture, from role to role, also gives us an opportunity to change, right? And we can, we can try and hold on to the person we were, and we can cling to it, and we can, and we can resent the change, or we can use these crossroads, even tragedy, not to exploit it, for personal, for personal improvement or something. That's not what I'm saying. But to create life out of death. Yeah. I think that's the great challenge Which of all people. you did people. today. And, and it's amazing how you have spent so much energy now on helping others who have been going through grief with your book and all the yeah. speaking engagements you have. And, and it's amazing how you found that energy to do it. Hmm. Well, I didn't have it at first. I'll tell you that much. I could, I could barely, I have to admit, I could barely walk for a long time. It took, it took a while, like a, like a physical injury. It took a while to gain my energy back. But here was the magic that I never knew of before. Here's the magic that is so obvious, and I'm sure that lots of listeners knew this better than I knew it then. But it is in extending oneself. It is in trying to how do I put this so it doesn't sound like some very cliched Beatles song or something, but it really is, it really is in loving others, mm. in trying to reach out and love others, that one then finds healing, if we're going to use that word, or one we love. So incrementally, I had to step out and dare to try and love other people, love strangers, enter into their loss, enter into their pain. It was hard at first, because I'll just say I was very proud. I thought, whatever's happened in someone else's life, it is not as bad as the death of this child. I really believed that. Mm. But that's, that's how egotistical it was. And, and many people write about that. They, they say, well, there's nothing like the ego of the sufferer, because we think this is the worst thing ever to happen in the history of humanity ever. Mm -hmm. And I, I really felt that in my bones until I met people who had lived lifetimes of abuse, people who had been beaten by their alcoholic fathers, people who were in their uh, deserts of marriages, people who had chronic illness. These were all things that were in my blind spots in my life. I knew about them theoretically, but it was not until my shutters were ripped violently wide open to the world of loss that I realized, hey, <laughs> loss is what life is about. And you cannot stretch your arm out in a room without touching some iteration of loss. And that was a huge awakening for me. And so that, that's where I thought, I, I, I don't know anything about being raised by a, an abusive alcoholic father that locks you in a room for days on end. But I know something about hurt, and that's where I'll meet you. Mm. And, and that's where, in trying to love that person and help and, and give dignity to that person, that I felt, I felt strengthened. I felt somehow filled up. And that's, 
that's why I get to this place where I am now. And I have to be careful in this part of the narrative because I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm painting myself as a saint. Footnote, asterisk, I am not. Okay. <laughs> but, but what I really love to do is I love to find people that are hurting. And this refugee crisis has just been, this has been it. It's been, um, number one, families on the move. <laughs> families on the move. And then people who have lost. Yeah. But it's a level that is exponentially beyond anything that I can even begin to touch. Yeah. And, and I can sit at a table with someone who, yes, has moved country, but it's been with a backpack on her back. And by the way, she walked 4,000 miles amazing. from Syria to Germany, right? And in the process, saw people lose their lives and has lost a child herself and maybe a spouse and half of her village. So um, I feel humbled. I feel humbled honestly, to have any right to even talk with these people. Mm. And, I, and I stay quiet about my own experiences because I feel like, oh, I just feel so small. Mm. I feel so small compared to these people that I'm working with. It is amazing, so, it is amazing mm. that you have that, you know, again, groundness to be able to see that that way because it takes a lot of, you know, effort to come out of that pain and be able to see the pain of others. And I love how your narrative the whole time is about the concept of loss, no matter what it is, and mm -hmm. helping people who have gone through loss and pain. And it doesn't necessarily mean the loss of a beloved one, but it can be the loss of so many things that, and especially in the international life we go through. This is, mm -hmm. could be another third part, but... <laughs> Let's do that another time. But I love how you, you go around that. But one thing I wanted to touch on before we... I don't know how we're going to end this. I could talk to you in, for hours. But, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about how we can help, um, you know, how what helps a person who's grieving. And then how can we help a person who's grieving? But one thing I want to talk about is how can a person who's grieving help others who want to help and give them some signals of what they need because sometimes it does help to just know what could help others i know oh you are intelligent <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever asked me that question before although i've wished that someone would the onus really is on the griever to say what the griever needs the problem's this mm -hmm. <laughs> the griever exactly. is so incapacitated that the griever can't say and also for me and it happens to be the first line or one of the first lines of Joan Didion's marvelous memoir on loss called a uh, year of magical thinking she's one of the great american writers she says the question of self pity and we that have lost and and have been reduced, have been liquefied, reduced to a powder also by loss. We're afraid to say, I need this and this and this, because it might be interpreted as, I need to stir up your pity. I need to stir up your grief. For me, I remember thinking, if you don't see that I'm bleeding to death here, I, I, I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> But right now, for the sake of our interview, I can give some hints. I, I can give some hints. Um, it's good to have someone else that sort of runs interference for you when you are in the early throes of grief. If you can have someone that says, please don't visit their home. Mm -hmm. 
or give them about a week just to learn to breathe again. Or you know what they really need? They need A, B, C, D, E. If you so can, basically if you're you, saying it's good to find somebody, the person who's in grief, to find somebody they trust enough to yeah. become a bit their agent. I'm sorry for yeah. the term, but no, I can't think right. of a better one right now. It's an excellent uh, term. Of mm -hmm. Somebody or in, uh, in between to be able to guide the people who want to help and make sure yeah. that they help them the right way. An agent, an intermediary, somebody yeah. who is there just to say, I understand what they need. Call me and I'll filter. That, that sort of thing. That helps. Otherwise, um, it, it, we have to learn to be able to say the words, I need this, or say, I'm hurting, or be able to identify what really is going on. I feel confused, or I, I'm feeling sick, I'm feeling weak. Somehow we have to learn how to say those words. The ideal time to learn how to say them is before tragedy ever hits. So that's a whole other skill set is to be able to actually communicate what it is that we're feeling. But when you're in grief, it's such uh, it's such a whirlwind of feelings you don't even know. You don't even know. Um, so, uh, what one very wise woman once told me, once told me, who had also lost a son uh, and was a social worker by profession, was. You need to protect yourself and protect yourself and protect yourself for a long time. And then when you get the feeling that it's time to push, then you push. And then you go out and then you're able to articulate a little bit better where your boundaries are, what you can do, what you can't do, what you need. But at the beginning, it's really, you're just, you're protecting yourself because you're skinless mm -hmm. at the very beginning after major loss. You're naked. You, yeah. You're naked. You're naked. And um, gosh, maybe it would be helpful if people sort of um, were able to write down what they need. Sometimes we can't say it, but I would write down things and then I would pass those emails on to other people and just say, please, please tell other people, this is how we're doing. This is what I'm feeling. Yeah. I was able to write things better than I was able to speak. Yeah, that's a great advice. And but let's not forget also that sometimes uh, I'm not an expert, but my feeling is that we also don't know what we want, and it's okay yeah. to say it because it's it's such a huge tornado that that it, the first weeks, the first months, that it's hard to know what we need. So it's also okay to say I don't know what I need, but for the moment. Mm -hmm. um, You know, this is the space I need. This is the things I need, and and mm -hmm. sometimes we also change our minds. Yes. <laughs> so I think from hour to hour. From yeah, hour from to hour, hour to hour. So I think the it's important. Yeah. Yeah. The the, I think that's where the collaboration and the love comes in, in you know, surfing together as a griever and the family or the friends around to, to try to find that balance, I think, because there's no right or wrong at the end of the day, although today we're trying to give some clues. Um, it's all about love, isn't it? Yes, and, and, and something that comes to mind right now that I've learned over the process is that grief and forgiveness are inseparable partners. You're going to have to forgive and you're going to have to ask for forgiveness And, and that's on many, many different levels. But even if we were to precede our comments, if we're on the helping side, if we're the onlooker, 
we're trying to help someone who's a survivor of loss, if we said first, please forgive me for what I'm going to say, or please forgive me before I even start doing anything. I know I'm going to make mistakes. Please, will you forgive me? Mm-hmm. And then if we also, as the grievers, say, please forgive me if I throw a sofa through the wall, <laughs> or please forgive me if I suddenly break down in tears in the cereal aisle of the grocery store. Please forgive me if I seem disoriented. Please just forgive me. Because then we're going to give each other, on both sides of the equation, we're going to give each other bandwidth to be absolutely human. And, And human means we're going to be imperfect. And it also then opens up the door for us to forgive one another. And, 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 we, and we get our hearts in a position where we say, yeah, our neighbor's going to say something kooky, and our pastor's going to say something self-righteous, and our great aunt is going to say something way out there, and our, neighbor's not, and our, and our sister's not going to say anything, but we're going to forgive them. Mm-hmm. Because we, you have to, as a griever, you have to forgive quickly because you can't get well if you're carrying, on top of grief, you're carrying the burden of resentment and anger. So important. I love that It's, you bring up this. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I can only say it because, hello, yeah, very <laughs> it's important. me. It's my story. I, I just, I could not, and my husband couldn't either, I could not move forward with this ball and chain of anger, resentment, even rage holding me back. Mm. Um, the way to healing is is love and openness and softness and, and suppleness, not, not rage. And it's really easy to get caught in that rage vortex for a long time. Okay. You can get stuck there for years and years and years and never come out. Such so. an important message here, you know, the forgiveness part, asking for forgiveness before, during, after, uh, mm-hmm. and from both sides and accepting to forgive. And this mm-hmm. is such an important message. Thank you for that one. Uh, before we say goodbye, I'd like to talk briefly of the international aspect of it that I'm sure makes it even more complicated. Is there mm-hmm. any insight you want to share about that? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a big deal, yeah. <laughs> at least in our story. The international aspect was is goes back to this idea of community. We We were in the middle of a move, as I've mentioned, from a long-standing community in Paris to a brand new world when we were also catapulted to the planet of grief. So no one in the new place where we lived knew our story. No one knew when we showed up mm-hmm. in public that we had holes shot through our torso. So that, that was one of the big, that was one of the complicating factors on one hand with, with our experience with loss was that We didn't have a community on hand. On the other hand, it then showed us the beauty of the, com- the greater international community at the funeral of this beautiful son that took place in the Rocky Mountains of the, of the United States. There was a chapel full of people that flew in from Norway, France, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Singapore, Japan, all over the United States because they were our community. And they showed up. They came. They came to honor this boy. So while we didn't have a geographic locus where we moved in, in, into Germany that knew our story and therefore could grieve what they had also lost in this boy, we had this international community that did. And that international community has been necessary. Now, for, for those of our listeners that are living in wherever area it is on the planet, and someone shows up in your community fresh 
from loss. Mm. What do you do? Yeah. What do you do? Because they're a stranger, right? This, this person is a stranger. And there might be people that show up in your midst and you have no idea that they are shot through the torso. But you might find out later in the process, what can you do? Well, I can give you some examples. Even strangers can do incredibly beautiful things to help one another. Marvelous, tender things. If the woman at the dry cleaners can staple a little handwritten note on the plastic wrapping around the black funeral suits of our sons, Mm -hmm. a little note that says, I don't know you, but I'm praying for you and your loss. And that to this day, almost 10 years later, I saved that handwritten note. It was like a boost. It was like a shot of oxygen for me. Strangers can do that sort of thing. You don't have to impose yourself, but you can say in so many words, I know, and I'm sorry, and I'm with you. And if at any time you want to talk with me, I will make myself available. We'll go on a walk. I'll share some beautiful music with you. There's this book that I read. Maybe it will help. Mm. Those sorts of things. Strangers can enter in to one another's lives in tender, knowing ways and say something like, I can't know what you're experiencing, but because I know a little bit about my own experience with with loss, I'd like to learn from you. Mm. Because the grieving have great things to teach others. Yeah. Yeah. And and how do you when you arrive in a new country is it something you try to bring because you 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 said at the beginning how you know people don't know that you're hurt people don't know that right. you're broken so right. um would you advise to bring that topic as soon as possible when you meet people to make sure that they know because well, it's not I always, their fault if they don't know right they don't know yeah and I write about that in my first book Global Mom is that people don't know if they if they weren't there writing the narrative they have no idea that there's a part missing in the narrative. So you can't blame them. Um, I, I always do a couple of things before I share this sort of, because it's treasure, it's, it's sacred treasure. Mm. Um, I always sort of say an inward prayer, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I say, is this the right place, the right person, the right time mm-hmm. for me to share this sort of thing? And sometimes I get sort of this clear feeling that says, yeah, yeah, you, you can do it. And sometimes the immediate answer is don't, don't do it right now. Mm. Don't share right now. What I do try to do, though, because you know this as a global nomad, and all of our listeners know this, when you're a new person on the block, the first question is, well, tell me about your family. Are these all your kids? Mm. Tell us about your oldest kids. So we've developed an entire, <laughs> an entire uh, method of responding to that most innocent, most well-meaning question. We start with the bottom of our kids. We start with the youngest. We say, oh, well... We have, this is our youngest, and we tell all about him. Mm. And then we, set, then we move up the ladder. We say, and this is our next child. We tell all about him. And then we get to the third child, and we tell all about her. And I try to get lost in the thicket of that big talk about that daughter. And I'm still testing to see whether they really want to know about the fourth child. Mm. Sometimes by then they've lost interest. Interesting. Sometimes, though, they'll say, but the fourth child, what about the fourth child? And again, if I say that inward prayer and I get that feeling it's safe and you should tell them, then I usually say, I'm very grateful that you asked that question. I'm going to answer it 
And maybe you'll feel awkward, but please don't, because I want to answer that question. And then I tell in a, in a brief, brief way about this son, and I, and I say him by name. I say, Parker is our oldest son. And here's what happened to Parker. And then I say, please don't ever feel that you can't mention his name. In fact, when you do mention his name, my heart sings. I want you to speak his name because he's very much a part of our lives still. We haven't tucked him away someplace. He, he's a part of our daily conversations, and, and he's very much alive for us. And so, uh, so I do that. So we do that as a family we've learned. Um, my children are a little bit different. My children have made, had the experience that maybe they're not so safe sharing their brother with younger kids. Maybe kids are maybe not as capable. I don't know. I don't know if they're able to move into that sort of a deep region and talk about death. So my kids, sometimes I had one child that just denied having a brother for the longest time mm. until it started making him sick. And then he found a way to share that story with others. And, and it varies from person to person. But for my husband and for myself, that's, that's what we've done. We, we know that as soon as we move to a new place, people are going to ask, tell us about your family. And we start telling. And if they really have the, if they have the endurance to get to that fourth child, then if we feel good about it, we tell the story. Sometimes we also say, if the setting isn't right, but we feel that the person would be receptive, then we say, oh, that's one of the most beautiful and sad stories that I can tell and I want to tell you, but this isn't quite the place. If you want to know, let's ask another time. And, and, and people have actually come back and they've said, you were going to tell us about your son. Would you, would you feel comfortable telling? And you know what, I know. That's when some really extraordinary, really beautiful, I get teary just thinking about it. Some authentic human interaction takes place because whatever loss the other person has experienced, it connects them. It might have been their father. It might have been a grandfather, something. Mm -hmm. They connect. And then you're talking with the human in front of you and not just a person. Yeah. So. Wow, yeah. Melissa. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm very emotional right now. So, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for sharing so openly and so generously. And, and thank you for sharing that because I know and I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, if there is one precious episode, I think it's this one. Uh, so thank you so much. And Nomad Nation, please check out Melissa's blog, Melissa daltonbradford.wordpress.com and also her two books. Melissa, would you like to mention your books, please? Yes. So my blog's name is Melissa Writes of Passage. It's at WordPress, like you just mentioned. Melissa Writes as in W-R-I-T-E-S. Okay. Melissa Writes of Passage. My first book is Global Mom, a Memoir. And the second book is On Loss and Living Onward. And both of them are available at your conventional online and, and you can order them through conventional means and there's an audio version also i narrate it uh so if you wanted to go on amazon there's an audio version of that as well which which book both or of of the first one and i sing in it i just i sing i sing in my book right into the microphone wonderful wonderful (laughs) so nomad nation please check out melissa's books and blog and melissa again 
I want to thank you again. I've done it already, but this is so precious to me what you've shared with us today. And in a way, I also want to thank Parker, thanks oh. to whom we've met and thanks to whom this is possible. Thank you. I guess we'll just end in tears on that. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful so I can't, my thoughts goes to him and thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you very much, Emma.